Well, today, we're talking about sex. Now that I got your attention, welcome to part two of Polarized. Hey, real quick, if you missed part one, uh, I would just encourage you, please go back and watch that. It kind of sets a tone for the whole series, and without watching part one, you don't know my heart, my intention, or my, de- or my desire for this series. So if you're watching online, just you know, shut off right now, go back, watch part one, then come back to this. If you're in the room, just when you leave here, maybe go watch part one when we're done with this. Uh, as we launched this series last week, I, t- I talked about that. One of the reasons I felt like I was supposed to do this series is because maybe more than any other time in history, we're living in a polarized world where people are be- being divided into camps against one another. I mean, everyone, including you, has some doctrinal, theological, spiritual, moral, social, sexual, ideological positions that you believe deeply are true, that you believe deeply are right. Maybe more than ever before, we're living in a world where everyone is taking their stand by their right position. I'm just going to take my stand by my right position. And the approach you and everyone is naturally inclined to take and many times feels forced to take is to take our stand by our position away from those people, those people who we disagree with, those people who behave, believe, think differently than we do, those people who, in your estimation, are wrong. And everyone's talking at each other and yelling at each other. No one's listening to one another. Everyone's concluding unless you believe and behave and think like me, unless you agree with my right position, then we're against one another. And that's doing nothing but creating hostility and anger and resentment, bitterness, Tension, division within our country and communities and within families and within the church. And the reality is, is there are so many issues that are creating polarization in our world, in our country today. But as I thought and prayed about what's causing division within the church today, four issues kept coming to my mind over and over and over again. Uh, Those four are sex, which I said a second ago we're going to talk about today, gender identity, abortion, and drugs and alcohol. Now, these aren't the only four. But to some degree or another, all four are causing division between followers of Christ and between the church and unchurched people, people who are not part of the church, people who would not call themselves followers of Christ. And it doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way, even if we disagree. So throughout this series, I'm addressing each of these four polarizing issues. And as I said last week, I have three primary goals, three primary outcomes for this series. My first primary goal for this series is to discover biblical truths, discover biblical truth around each of these four issues. Let me quickly just reiterate a couple things I said last week. First, this is not a political series. This is a biblical series. I am not here to push or promote any political agenda, policy, or party. I'm here to point us to Jesus and to the truths that God has revealed through the writers of Scripture. If you're a follower of Christ, your and my primary concern should not be how the government defines these issues or constructs laws around them. Our primary concern as followers of Christ should be to discover biblical truth and to live our lives in a way that glorifies God. Secondly, I'm not so arrogant to say I have God all figured out. But I'm going to do the best job I can to communicate what I believe to be biblical truth and God's heart on these issues. Now, if you disagree with my conclusions that these are biblical truth, I'd encourage you to ask why. And is it possible, and I don't know, only you can answer. I'm just asking, is it possible that what you've labeled as truth, 
is actually founded and grounded in yourself, in your opinions, in your past, in your experiences, in your hurts, in your struggles, in your wants, in your desires, instead of creator, holy, almighty God and his created desire, will, and intent. Listen, I might be wrong, but you might be too. And if you still disagree with me, that's okay. You don't answer to me, and I don't answer to you, but we all will answer to God. Now, third, I only have 30 minutes for each of these sermons. I mean, there are books written on these topics. There are Bible classes on these topics. I have 30 minutes, which means I can't answer every question, speak into everyone's life, talk about every situation, and what about all this? I, I do not have time to do that. So anyone who's like, you didn't say, you should have said, how come you just relax a little bit? I have 30 minutes. You try to do this, all right? Now, my second primary goal for this series is surrender. Once again, need to be very clear on this. According to the writers of Scripture, we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus by asking Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins, our Savior, and the leader of our life, our Lord, alone. And what that means is none of these issues in and of themselves affect our salvation. But how we choose to respond or not respond to them does affect our transformation God wants to transform you more into everything he's created you to be. The transforming work that only God can do in us requires one huge thing from us, and that huge thing is surrender. Listen, if you feel guilty at any point in this series, that's not from God. But there's a possibility that some of you might feel convicted to change something during this series. And if you do, I believe it's God working in you. I believe Jesus is inviting you to take a next step to follow him. My prayer is, as, as I address all these four issues is that we all, regardless of where we're at on our spiritual journey, surrender to however Jesus prompts, convicts, inspires, invites us to follow him because transformation happens by following Jesus one next step at a time. My last and maybe most important goal for this series is unity. Jesus won, and there was just one. Jesus' one new covenant command for all of his followers, for his church, was to love one another just as he first loved us. And he made it very clear that by that one thing, we demonstrate and authenticate we're truly followers of Christ. My prayer for this series is not that we agree on everything. My prayer is that by the end of the series, we're more united in loving one another just as Jesus first loved us, even when, especially when, we disagree. And that's my prayer because God cannot be glorified when the church is polarized. God's created will for you and me is to glorify him. That's our ultimate, that's the ultimate purpose of our lives and that's the ultimate purpose of his church. And God cannot be glorified when followers of Christ, when, when his church is polarized from each other or from people who don't know him because we are called to love just as he first loved us. Now, I know some of you will completely disagree with what I say in this series and how I define truth. I know some of you have struggled in the past or are currently struggling with, with one of these issues we're talking about in this series. I know that some of you are living in a way that is contrary to what I say in this series. If that's you, just want to say a few things to you. I'm so glad you're here. I am so glad you're here. 
Secondly, if you missed part one, please go back and watch. And third and finally, you don't have to leave or disengage from relevant. And I hope you don't. I can't speak for every single person at relevant, but I can speak for a majority of us. Listen, we want to stand with you in the messy middle, even though we disagree. We don't want you to hide. We don't want you to fake. We want you to be authentic and just come as you are. You can belong here before you believe, even if you never believe. And be loved here and find hope and healing and community here. So we don't, we don't want to stand over here against you. We want to stand in the messy middle with you in relationship. But this is why you got to go back and watch last week if you didn't. It requires you from standing over here and being willing to stand with us in the messy middle as well. Even if we disagree. And now, on to our topic. Sex. Now, some of you are assuming, because I don't know, this is a church or I'm a pastor, I'm going to say sex is bad, and you are crazy. Sex is great. And it's great because Creator God created it, and sex was God's idea. He created it, and He is for it. I think we can all probably agree that there's nothing like sex. There's nothing like sex because it's the one way new people are created. There's nothing like sex because nothing feels like it, looks like it, excites us like it, intrigues intrigues people like it. There's nothing like sex because nothing has positively or negatively impacted families and marriages and communities and relational intimacy and identities and education like sex has. There's nothing like sex because nothing consumes and tempts and drives people like sex does. I mean, we live in a sex-crazed culture and a sex-crazed world. There's nothing like sex because nothing impacts you like sex. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. And there's nothing like sex because nothing has polarized people like sex has. Nothing has divided our country and families and churches and marriages and communities like sex has, like sex has. Now, the reality is sex in and of itself is not polarized people. What has divided people, what has put people against one another is the is a phrase found in scripture. The phrase is Sexual immorality. Now, the reason that this phrase has become so polarizing is because there's so much disagreement and there's so much emotion around the question, what is sexual immorality? Now, according to the writers of Scripture, sexual immorality is defined as any act of sex outside of creator God's created intent for it. Now, that definition is not what has polarized people. What has is disagreement over, over the answer to the question, what acts of sex are outside of Creator God's created intent for it? Which obviously leads to the next question, well, what is Creator God's created intent for sex? And the answer to that question dictates the answer to this question, who is sex for? I mean, is sex for people who are physically able, people who are in love, people who are horny, people who are consenting, people who crave it, young people, old people, married people, single people, is sex for everybody? Well, today, I'm going to attempt to answer these three questions based on what I believe to be truth, that God is, truth, God has communicated through the writers of Scripture by looking at, quickly looking at three sections of Scripture. But before I look at these, let me be very, very clear on something. Everything I say today has to do with our choices. And some of you have been sexually abused. 
And that was not your choice. And that was not your fault. My heart breaks for you. More importantly, your heavenly Father's heart breaks for you. And Jesus wants to and can heal the parts of you that feel dead inside because of that abuse. And he proved he can when he defeated death and rose from the grave. If you need help in taking steps toward that, please reach out to us. We want to help you do that. Now, to begin answering these three questions, I have to, we have to go all the way back to the creation account uh, found in the first book of our Bibles, the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Now, in Genesis 1, God is in the midst of creating everything. And on the sixth day, we read he reaches the climax of his creation when he creates human beings. And here's how the writer of Genesis described it. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, a couple of important things to take note of here in order to answer the questions we're attempting to answer today and that we'll also come back to later in this series as well. The first thing to notice is this. According to the writer of Genesis, holy God is the creator of humanity and he originally created us in his perfect and holy image. And humanity did bear holy God's image like he created us to until what we now call the fall occurred. And the fall is when sin entered into this world through humanity's choice to sin. Humanity's choice to sin was a direct violation against holy creator God, a direct violation against his created intent for us, which is to be holy, how he is holy, and a direct violation against his created will for us, which is to glorify him. Bottom line, at the fall, sin distorted who we are and who God created us to be from that point forward. The second thing to notice here is that sex difference, the difference between male and female, is woven into the fabric of creation. Now, Genesis 1 is kind of a summary of what God created. Genesis 2 describes more in detail about how God created humanity. In Genesis 2, the writer of Genesis tells us that the first human God created was a man whom he named Adam. And after he created Adam, he told Adam his purpose. He said, Adam, essentially he said to him, Adam, my created purpose for you is to glorify me by doing my will and my work. Well, immediately, Adam gets to work. But as he does, God notices something just isn't right. Verse 18 of, of Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a, and this is such an important phrase here, helper suitable for him. God saw Adam working by himself and said, this ain't good. He needs a companion. So God decided to create something new. And you'll notice two things God said is going to be true about what he created next. The first thing is that it will be a helper. The question is, helper to do what? The answer is, Help her to glorify him by doing his will and doing his work with Adam. Second, question, second thing is uh, what God created next was not just any helper, but is described as a suitable one. Now, the Hebrew word in Hebrew's original language that the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, was written in, the Hebrew word translated suitable here is a Hebrew word, konegdo. And konegdo is a very difficult, difficult word to translate to English because it's a compound word made up of ke, 
which is, means like, similar, sameness, and neged, which means opposite, dissimilar, different. It's a combination of two different Hebrew words for sameness and difference. So together, the word konegdo means something like as opposite him or like, uh, like against him. Here's the suitable helper God created and how he created it. So the Lord God caused the man, Adam, to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman, whom we later find out is named Eve, from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. To Adam's surprise, God didn't create an it. He created another who. And I imagine Adam, when he laid his eyes on Eve, he was so taken back by her beauty, he spent a couple moments praising God like, God, great job and thank you, you know. <laughs> and, and then Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. Essentially, Adam is saying, God, she is definitely a suitable helper. And what made her connecto? What made her suitable it's that she was like and similar to adam in her in, in that she was human and it was that she was opposite than adam in her femaleness in her sex difference in the next sentence the writer of genesis transitions from talking specifically about how creator god created the first male and female to his created design for marriage says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united. And that word means a permanent binding together. And is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And in this verse, Adam and Eve's marriage is given universal application. Now, if everything I just explained is true, according to the writers of Scripture, Creator God's created design for marriage is to be between one man and one woman. To unite one man and one woman as one with the purpose of glorifying him. To create an indissoluble bond between one man and one woman that can't be separated, that can't be unwound. And you may go, well, that may be how it all started, but things have changed. And you might be right. But before we jump to that conclusion, let's look at what Jesus himself had to say. The second passage I want to look at today is found in the New Testament book of Matthew. And in Matthew 19, Jesus is confronting some Jewish religious leaders called Pharisees about their lenient view of divorce. And in the middle of that conversation, Jesus said this. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. So, Jesus started his argument about divorce reaching all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 27, and reminded them that sex difference, the difference between male and female, was built into the very nature of what marriage, was, of what marriage is by, by creator God. And then Jesus, he does this weird thing, he immediately fast forwards to Genesis 2 and quoted verse 24 and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, Jesus said, but one flesh. Now, in Jesus' argument about divorce, 
He reiterated what we just discovered about marriage from the writer of Genesis. That first of all, creator God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. And secondly, that creator God's design for marriage is to permanently bind together, to create an indissoluble bond between one man and one woman that can't be separated, that can't be unwound. Now, once again, you may be saying, well, that may have been true in the first century, but this is the 21st century. Things have changed. And once again, you might be right. Or it might be possible that instead of translating culture through Scripture, we're trying to translate Scripture through our and to fit into our 21st century Western culture. Now, the question still remains. How is this uniting? How is this indissoluble bond created? Is it because I say I do? Is it because I signed a piece of paper saying I was married? Well, this leads to the third and final passage I want to look at today, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote a majority of our New Testament, 20 years or so after the events of Jesus' life to the church, the community of Christ followers in a city called Corinth. And here's what he wrote. He said, do you not know, and he said this because maybe they didn't know, like maybe we don't know. Do you not know that he who, and here's this word again, unites himself with a prostitute? And that's another way of saying, has sex with, is one with her in body. For it is said, and then he quotes what the writer of Genesis said in Genesis 2 and what Jesus said in Matthew 19. The two will become one flesh. And their response and our response is, no one's uniting. No one's becoming one with anyone, I mean, we're just having sex. And Paul's going, you obviously don't understand sex. There is a uniting, there is a permanence, there's becoming one that happens when you have sex because creator God created it that way. Paul is clearly communicating the point that the writer of Genesis and Jesus implied. That the act of sex creates the indissoluble bond between two people. Now, based on these three passages, we can begin answering our questions. According to the writer of Genesis, according to Jesus, according to Paul, God's created design for marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and God's created intent for sex is to be, is to be within the context of marriage. God created marriage for one man and one woman to permanently unite as one, and he designed sex to create that indissoluble bond. And because of that, here's what Paul instructed followers of Christ to do. Here's what Paul instructed people who have put their faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life to do. Flee, which means run, get as far away from. Not sex, that isn't bad, it's great. But sexual immorality. So, what is sexual immorality? Well, according to Jesus, according to Paul, according to the writers of Scripture, sexual immorality is any act of sex outside of creator God's creator, created design for marriage. Since God created marriage for one man and one woman to permanently unite as one, and since he designed sex to create that indissoluble bond, according to the writers of Scripture, sexual immorality is defined as any act of sex before 
outside of, in addition to, or after the marriage of one man and one woman. Now, if that's true, I want to quickly say one thing to those of you who have same-sex attraction. Because I realize at this point you could feel so defeated. Because it's not like you can just flee from how you feel. And many of you have tried to flee from how you feel. If this is you, you need to know a couple things. First, your same-sex attraction is not sexual immorality. Secondly, you need to know God loves you. Your same-sex attraction does not prevent you from putting your faith in Jesus or following Jesus. And the third thing you also need to know is you may not have chosen your same-sex attraction. However, just like everyone else, your sexual behavior is a choice. Back to Paul. Paul instructed those of us who say we're followers of Christ, to flee from sexual immorality. And here's why. He says, all. How many? Every single one. All. All other sins a person commits, meaning every other category of sin, regardless of how big or small, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul's saying sexual immorality is like no other sin. It's like no other sin, not because it's worse than any other sin. It's not worse. Sin is sin. Sin doesn't make us bad. All sin makes us dead. Sexual immorality is like no other sin, not because God hates it more, not because God will judge you more harshly, not because God won't forgive you. Sexual immorality is like no other sin because it impacts you like no other sin. And the reason it impacts you and me like no other sin is because God, sex is not just a physical thing. It's a soul thing. God designed sex to bridge body and soul. God designed sex to link to the non-physical part of you. God designed sex for there to be a connection between our sexual behavior and our soul. When people say, it's just sex, I'm not hurting anyone, they bought into a lie. Because the reality is, is, is sexual immorality hurts us. It hurts us at the deepest level imaginable. It hurts us at the core of who we are, at, the, at our soul. Sexual immorality is extraordinarily destructive because it negatively impacts our souls, who we are in a way that no other sin does. Because every time we have sex with someone, we unite with them. Not just physically, but at a soul level. Because that's how God created it. And you got to know this. God created our souls to relate intimately with him. And according to Paul, somehow, and he doesn't explain this somehow, sexual immorality creates an indissoluble bond with another that negatively impacts our soul's ability to experience intimacy with God. That drastically affects our soul's ability to fully know and interact with God. That, that damages our soul's ability to relate to God the way we were created to relate to God. That impacts our ability to, to glorify God and love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what this means is sexual immorality doesn't impact our salvation. No, 
No act of sexual sin keeps us out of or takes us out of a saving relationship with Jesus. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone. We're saved by God's grace through faith, through putting our faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life alone. But it does impact our transformation. Sexual immorality does impact us being more transformed into who God created us to be. Sexual immorality does impact us being sanctified into the image of Christ because of what this unique sin does to our souls. Now, what, I'm gonna, what I say next is very, very, very important. And if you listen to nothing else I said all day, listen to this. Sexual immorality is sexual immorality. Adultery is sexual immorality. Same-sex sex, not same-sex attraction, is sexual immorality. Premarital sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend is sexual immorality. No act of sexual immorality is worse than any other. Even though some people try to categorize them all and justify their own, why they dismiss some or look down on some as worse than others. Sexual immorality is sexual immorality. Every act of sexual immorality is the same to God and impacts our souls the same. Impacts our soul's ability to glorify God, to relate to God, to experience God, and be transformed by God. So quit categorizing them, quit justifying your own while you're looking down on someone else's. And this is why our Heavenly Father, who loves us, says through Paul, flee from sexual immorality. So, as kind of a recap. Here's our questions and answers. What's creator God's created intent for sex? Well, according to the writers of scripture, according to Jesus, God created marriage to be between one man and one woman, and God's created intent for sex is to be within the context of marriage. What is sexual immorality? Well, according to Jesus and according to Paul, sexual immorality is any act of sex outside of creator God's design for marriage. Here's a shorter way to say it. God created marriage, God created sex, God created sex for marriage. Who is sex for? According to the writers of scripture, it's not for people who are physically able. It's not for people who are in love. It's not for consenting people. It's not for everybody. The writers of scripture over and over and over say it's for one man, one woman for life. Now, that's what I believe to be truth according to holy creator, almighty God. And what does this mean for us? Well, for those of you who call yourselves followers of Christ, for those of you who agree that this is biblical truth, in order for us to be a healthier, more God-glorifying church, don't take your stand by your right position away from those people. Don't take your stand by your right position away from people who disagree or are living contrary to this. That does nothing but create a me against you culture. It does nothing but create division. Instead, stand with them in the messy middle because this is where relationship is. And influence happens within the context of relationship. 
Stand with them in the messy middle and love them just as Christ first loved you by embodying the fullness of grace and truth. Not the balance of grace and truth. We like to do this and turn one up and down at different times. The, the, the fullness of grace and truth because like Jesus have the fullness of both. Never turn down God's amazing grace because the fullness of God's grace is needed for God's transforming truth to be received. And never water down God's perfect truth because the fullness of God's truth is needed for God's grace to be felt and known and experienced and accepted. Embody the fullness of grace and truth in the messy middle with people who disagree, who aren't there because that's how we love others just as he first loved us. For those of you who disagree with me, that this is biblical truth, this is God's truth, or you're currently living in sexual immorality, whether you agree with me that it is or not, for you, you don't have to hide. You don't have to fake anything. Just come as you are. And you don't have to leave. You don't have to disengage. You can belong here be loved here even though we disagree but as I said earlier it will require you choosing to stand in the messy middle with us too <laughs> instead of over here against us until we agree on everything now for everyone for everyone regardless of where you're at on your journey, if you agree with me or don't agree with me, if you call yourself a follower of Christ or not, if you're, regardless of what your current actions are, your past is, everyone, hear what I'm about ready to say. We will be a church. Let me say it again. We will be a church that is united in loving one another just as Christ first loved us that is united in our commitment to spur one another on toward following Jesus together in the fullness of grace and truth. So listen, if you're someone who wants us to turn down God's amazing grace, we're gonna miss you. And if you're someone who wants us to water down God's unchanging truth, we're gonna miss you too. We won't always get this right. As a matter of fact, we'll screw it up all the time. But we will be united in loving one another just as Christ first loved us by walking, by, by walking in the messy middle with one another in the fullness of grace and truth because that's what Jesus did. And we together are the body of Christ. When we choose to live like Jesus is when God is glorified and we experience the transforming work of Jesus in us and through us. Now let me say one more thing. And this is going to be really hard for some of you to hear. I just... Just know that up front. Sexual immorality is a surrender issue. And for some of us, as we talked about last week, remember this? It's that one thing that we're not willing to surrender. 
as I said before, not surrendering to Jesus in this area of your life, it doesn't impact your salvation, but it does impact our transformation. For those of you who aren't followers of Christ, you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've not asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, like me and everyone else, you need a Savior. You need a Savior to save you from your violation of sin that broke your relationship with Holy Creator God. And Jesus is inviting you. He's inviting you into a saving relationship with him. He's inviting you to follow him. But listen, not by surrendering this area of your life to him first. It's just by surrendering yourself to him. And you surrender yourself to him by confessing your need for a savior because your violation of sin broke your relationship with your heavenly father. And then declaring that you believe Jesus is that savior and can be your savior because of his death and resurrection. And then it's by asking Jesus to be your savior. Putting your faith in Jesus, asking him to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. And there is never any pressure to do that. But if you feel a stirring, a prompting to do that today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to in just a moment before we leave. For those of you who are followers of Christ, for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus and asked him to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, Paul ends 1 Corinthians 6 by reminding us who we are and how to surrender to and follow Jesus when it comes to our sexual behavior. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. He's saying, hey, the moment you put your faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, God's spirit took residence in you. The Holy Spirit took residence in you. That means you are God's holy temple. It's who you are. He's saying, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. And the price was Jesus' sacrifice, was Jesus shed blood for you on the cross. Therefore, here's his, here's his application of that. Honor God with your bodies. As followers of Christ, the standard for our sexual behavior should be to honor God. To go from, I will do what feels right and good to me, to God, I will surrender to you in order to glorify you. So, for those of you who have declared that you're a follower of Christ, that Jesus is your forgiver and the leader and the Lord of your life, here's my question specifically for you. Are you glorifying God with your sexual behavior? If not, how is Jesus inviting you to follow him? And before we go today, I just want to give you a moment or two to just reflect, to just pray. And listen, if you just feel that conviction, that stirring, then surrender. Surrender because I believe that's Jesus through his spirit inviting you to follow him. And transformation happens when we follow Jesus one next step at a time. When we take the next step to follow Jesus today, he transforms us more into who God's created us to be so that we want to and are able to follow him tomorrow. In just a moment or two, uh, I'm going to come up and 
pray for us to close out. And at that time, I'm going to give an opportunity for those of you who are ready to put your faith in Jesus to do so. But just for a moment or two, just where you're at, just take this moment to reflect and to pray. Heavenly Father, I pray um, that those of us who are your followers, Jesus, just choose, choose to surrender and follow you however you're inviting us to today. We choose to honor you and glorify you in every aspect of our lives. Lord, I, choose, I pray we all choose to love one another, Jesus, just as you first loved us. And finally, Lord, for anyone who's never put their faith in you, Lord, and they feel a stirring to do that, a prompting to do that, I pray today, right where they're at in this room or at home, as they're sitting there, they quietly choose to do that, that in this moment they confess their need for a Savior because of their violation of sin against God that broke the relationship you created us for. Right now, I pray that they declare, Jesus, they believe you to be that Savior because of your death and resurrection. And in this moment, I pray they ask you to be their Savior by putting their faith in you, asking you to be the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life, their Lord. In Jesus' name.